Like the office they commemorate, presidential libraries are living institutions. Certainly it is my hope that the Reagan Library will become a dynamic intellectual forum where scholars interpret the past and policymakers debate the future. Welcome to a Reagan Forum, hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. The Center for Public Affairs offers lectures and forums presenting perspectives on important public policy issues of the day from politicians, authors, members of the media, business and military leaders, and more. Just this summer, in June of 2023, tragedy struck when the Titan submersible, on its way to explore the Titanic, imploded under the ocean, immediately killing all of those on board. One of the first authorities to discuss the matter was Dr. Robert Ballard, the man responsible for discovering the Titanic in 1985. With his name back in the news, we thought it might be fun in this week's Reagan Forum podcast to dust off our program with Dr. Ballard from 2017. So please enjoy this podcast, which originally broadcast on April 19, 2018. In this week's A Reagan Forum, we look back to September 11, 2017, when we hosted one of the most accomplished and well-known of the world's deep-sea explorers, Dr. Robert Ballard. Dr. Ballard is best known for his historic discovery of the RMS Titanic, as well as his discoveries of hydrothermal vents, the German battleship Bismarck, and numerous other contemporary and ancient shipwrecks around the world. During his long career, he has conducted more than 150 deep-sea expeditions using the latest in exploration technology. Dr. Ballard was speaking at the Reagan Library as part of our Titanic exhibition, which has since closed. Even if you did not see the Reagan Library's Titanic exhibition, Dr. Ballard's discussion is still fascinating and very enlightening. Let's listen. Thank you. Thank you very much. You left a couple critical pieces of information out. One is that I was born in Wichita, Kansas, where all oceanographers come from. But that didn't last long. My father uh, flew with Chuck Yeager during the war as a test pilot, so I actually woke up in the Mojave Desert. But I grew up here in Los Angeles, and uh, this is where I fell in love with the sea as a kid. And my father went into outer space. My brother went into particle physics, and I was the dumb one that jumped in the ocean and went down the bottom of the ocean. Uh, it's a big puddle, as you can imagine. Uh, think about it. 72% of our planet is covered by water. We have better maps of Mars than we have of our own planet. We're trying to do something about that, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But I, here I was uh, going to Downey High School, and then I went off to UC Santa Barbara and majored in geology and chemistry. And, and then I was at USC getting my doctorate in, in marine geology when there was a knock on the door. And there was a naval officer on the other side of the door. And I found it odd because I had gone through, uh, I was trained as an, an infantry officer during Vietnam. I volunteered uh, for the Vietnam War as an infantry officer. But I was on delay to call while I went to graduate school thinking that as soon as I finished, I was headed to Vietnam. This is 1966, 67. And there was a naval officer standing at the door with an envelope. And you, you know, he said, congratulations. You know? And I went, what are you talking about? <laughs> You're no longer an army officer. You're a naval officer. And you have six days to report for active duty. <laughs> Really? Yeah. <laughs> and he said, I said, my closet's full of green uniforms. He said, better get some white and blue ones, you know. So I went down to San Pedro. But my real career in the oceans began when I arrived. Let's see if I get the right buttons here. 
at the Woodsall Oceanographic Institution. I never heard of it. Scripps never told me there was another oceanographic institution. I got in my little VW and I drove across the United States and first time our family had gone in the other direction. We'd landed in Virginia in 1635 and walked across America and I was the first generation to go back the other way. A little quicker the second time, you know. But I was a naval officer assigned to the deep diving program at Woods Hole and for the first, uh, through my active Navy career, I was assigned particularly to this submarine on the left, uh, which is a very, very special submarine that's, that very few people have ever heard of and you weren't supposed to hear. Uh, it's called the NR-1. It's the smallest nuclear submarine that was ever built. Uh, and it, it was, when I was a child, and my parents asked me what I wanted to be, I always told them I wanted to be Captain Nemo. Because I'd read the book 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and I saw the movie with, you know, with uh, uh, Kirk Douglas and, 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 and uh, James Mason, who was Captain Nemo. And I just wanted to be Captain Nemo. Now, uh, you talked about passion, and the critical thing is you should never laugh at a child's passion. Never, ever laugh at a child's passion. And when I told my parents that I just wanted to be Captain Nemo, I'm sure they went in the other room and said, Houston, we have a problem, but uh, <laughs> they didn't say it to me, and they encouraged me to follow my dream because it's your passion that gets you up. I always tell kids, do not avoid failure. It's the greatest teacher you'll ever meet. And when it knocks you down, it's your passion that'll get you back up. So you have to have passion. That's why I focus on middle school children, when children are forming their passions. And that's a critical point with planting that passion in child. Like I said, I was lucky that my passion was not extinguished by the educational process. Uh, and so here I was wanting to go in this, and then I was assigned to the really the closest we've ever come to building the Nautilus was the NR-1. A nuclear submarine, just like the Nautilus, could dive, you could go underwater for normally a month at a time. And it was a deep diving submarine. And it had windows. And it had wheels. And you could drive around the bottom of the ocean. And this was the coolest submarine. And I spent 30 years in and out of that submarine. And they decommissioned it. But they put the top part of it right near my house up in New London and in Connecticut. So I go there and can rub it once in a while. But, uh, but so I spent my early career uh, getting in submarines, trying not to get killed. Uh, these, both of these guys tried to kill me. Uh, this was with a fire at 9,000 feet, and this one was crashing into the side of a volcano at 20,000 feet. Uh, but I graduated to, to uh, the Alvin, and that was really my little home away from home for so many years at Woods Hole when I first was assigned to it as a naval officer and then went on to get my PhD and, and stuck with it and stayed at Woods Hole for 30 years, actually, uh, because they had Alvin. And the wonderful thing about Alvin was it's tiny. It's really not very, nothing like the NR1 or even, an, I've been on fast attacks and boomers and they're a little bigger. But Alvin is, uh, it, I shot this picture with a fisheye lens so it looks like it's really roomy, it's not. Uh, I'm 6'2 and the submarine sphere is six feet. So I can't even stand up and I used to have a lot of hair, I tore it all off. <laughs> Right there is a lot of Bob Ballard hair, you know, the DNA people can, I'm sure there's still scalp fragments here. I tore my head off on that thing. But when you dive in the submarine, you take three people with you and a pilot 
uh, and, and uh, you, uh, all, both of us have had hundreds of dives of experience, but you always taken a graduate student on their first dive. And they, you know, they've never been in a submarine. And so we have to have initiations, and we do all sorts of initiations. There's no bathroom in the submarine to begin with. So we know we're going to die, we dehydrate, we don't drink for the day, and we just completely dehydrate our body while we're filling the graduate student with coffee. Uh, <laughs> they do have a little, uh, sort of like a Tupperware bottle uh, called a human element range extender, or here, here, H-E-R-E, -E, human element range extender. It's right here. But anyway, uh, there was all sorts of initiation, but let's... That isn't really why I did it. Uh, but I went into a world that you just don't think exists. When you think of the floor of the ocean, you think of something flat. Most people think if you walked across the ocean, you start in, 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 on the East Coast, and you walk across, and it goes down, and then it goes back up, and you're in Europe. Not. The, the largest mountain ranges the greatest geological features of our planet are beneath the sea. And we just don't think about that. Because, but, but that's my world. It's not this. In fact, to give you a sense of scale, that, this is a mountain range I spend a lot of time exploring. This is the Mid-Ocean Ridge, the largest mountain range. It runs around our planet like the seam of a baseball. And it's here where the Earth is creating its outer skin because the Earth is a creature. It's a living organism. And right now, it's very angry with us. <laughs> I, I think the Earth's trying to get rid of us. I think it thinks we're a skin infection or something. But uh, to give you a sense of scale, this is Mount Everest up against the Big Island of Hawaii. Most of the Big Island's down there. This is the, we always have this on Facebook, you know, this is the, on a face saver on our computer or screensaver. Uh, this is uh, El Capitan. Uh, up against one wall I dove on that's 20,000 feet complete. That's to scale. This is the Grand Canyon in one of the smaller deep sea trenches. The Grand Canyon is a ditch uh, compared <laughs> to the canyons that we work in. So this, just look at the sense of scale of what's down there that we just don't have an appreciation for. And so I've spent so much time, I've been now... Oh, I don't know, I'm 75 and I started diving when I was 17. So I've been underwater a lot and I've spent a lot of time in that mountain range. But this is the, where I began my academic career, a, uh, the concept of plate tectonics, proving that the earth was actually a creature and that it could regenerate its skin. But the site of crustal genesis was along that mountain range. And so this was where the earth's skin is ripping itself open. And just like when we cut ourselves, we bleed warm blood, and that warm blood comes to the surface and coagulates and forms new skin. If you cut the earth, it bleeds as well. It'll bleed its blood, a little hotter than ours. Uh, it's 12 to 1400 degrees centigrade, but it comes out of the body of the planet and, and along where it's being torn open and creates new tissue. And that tissue hardens, and then it pulls it apart, and there's a constant genesis of crustal tissue but since the Earth isn't expanding or contracting as in steady state, if you create new tissue on the Earth somewhere else, you have to consume old tissue. 
And that's what's happening where the plates are in collision, the oceanic plate goes back inside the Earth, and the continental buckles up into great mountain ranges. All our great mountain ranges are collisions of these plates. But no one had actually gone to the boundary of creation. No one had actually gone down and witnessed this process till a group of us over a series of about six years began exploring different segments of this mountain range. Now to give you a sense, this is the Earth's crust as a function of age. So ground zero for us is the black line. This is tens of thousands of active volcanoes right now generating new tissue. That's ground zero. And then as they move away, you get an older and older crust. You'll notice that the width of the bands are different because the plates are moving at different speeds. Plates that have continents on their backs, like the African plate or the North American plate, don't move as fast as plates that have no continent on their back. And so you have the Cocos plate and Nazca plate and the Pacific plate. And they're, they're trucking. To give you a sense of, of that, the, the Atlantic Ocean will widen your height in your lifetime. It'll get roughly the length of your body in life. In the Pacific, it's 10 times faster. So it's, it's 10 centimeters a year. It's really trucking. And that's a huge amount of molten tissue being formed. So we were the first to actually go down and explore that mountain range. And to give you a sense, this is at the slow spreading one. So this give you a sense of reference. We went here first on a slow spreading ridge, and then we went on a fast spreading ridge. The slow spreading ridge has huge mountain range. But on the fast spreading ridge, the plates are pulling it out. So it's not even called a ridge. The mid-Atlantic ridge is a ridge. The East Pacific rise is a rise. So look at the difference in scale of topography to here versus here. But here, the volume of lava is immense compared to what's happening in the Atlantic. And it was in these initial discoveries, and people say, what's your greatest discovery? It definitely wasn't the Titanic. We knew it was there. Uh, and as you'll notice, it, it actually was a cover for a military operation. I can finally tell the truth. But anyway, uh, we, were, we were exploring this mountain range to understand this creation process. And it was interesting because where we go, it's pitch black. So, you know, I really need to turn. I don't know if I can actually do that without doing something terrible. No. I, sometimes they give you a little button, but I'm not going to do that. Everything will blow up. But anyway, <laughs> it's a world of eternal darkness. And because of that, sunlight cannot get down. And because of that, you, have, you can't have photosynthesis and yet, or much marine life. And then we discovered not only that, as the earth is belching out these this, these black smokers, and everything you see in this picture is commercial-grade ore of copper, lead, silver, zinc, and gold. We are finding vast, rich mineral deposits all along the, uh, the ocean floor. And in fact, just now, mining companies are filing to mine this copper, lead, silver, zinc, and gold. I don't know how much they found of that on the moon. I think they should fund us more than that. But discovering these exotic life forms, I can remember coming in on these creatures and these characterized by these giant worms. And these worms were, I just collected one last year, it was 13 feet tall. And then I found these giant clams. I mean, and it didn't look like a clam. In fact, it looked like liver. <laughs> I never like liver. I don't eat, <laughs> I don't eat pumps and filters, but anyway. When we got this clam, look how big that guy is, and we, I, I dissected him, 
and he had no internal organs, no mouth, no gut, no digestive system. He looked like a clam, but he wasn't. In fact, his entire body was full of another creature that we didn't know about called an extremophile that was living in this toxic environment and, and convinced and the same extremophiles are in these giant worms. This extremophile talked clams and worms into a deal called symbiosis. It says, you know, these volcanoes have poisonous toxic gases called hydrogen sulfide. I want you to breathe that for me. And I, I can't, what kind of conversation could that have been, you know? <laughs> like a clam going, what? He says, yeah, I just want you to breathe it. You know, just take it in and give it to me and I'll, I'll, I'll feed you better than you can feed yourself. Well, it convinced him and it then gave up all its body interior for this, for this guy to live inside of it. And these extremophiles are living in extremely hostile environments. And it's, this discovery is now pioneering our exploration in outer space because we are now convinced that life is pervasive throughout the universe. There's life throughout the universe and probably within our own solar system. And the ones we're focusing on are some moons of Jupiter called Europa or Enceladus or Saturn. And we believe that life, we will find life there. Now, I don't think we're going to find terribly smart clams but uh, I'm confident that there, there is life uh, within our own solar system. So I'd like NASA to get that over with so we can move on and explore our own planet. But anyway, uh, but the problem I was having in my explorations was getting to work. Uh, the, the average depth of the ocean is 13, uh, 12 to 13,000 feet. So to take a submarine down there, because you're going up against the coefficient of drag, which has an exponential function in it. So you can't increase your weight and expect a comparable increase in ascent and descent. You have to add 10 times. And it's just not practical to completely load yourself up with big pieces of pig iron and get you to sink faster. So we reach a terminal velocity of about 100 feet a minute. And so it takes to get to the Titanic, which is at 12,000 feet, it took two and a half hours each way. So how would you like to have a job where the commute is five hours a day. <laughs> and you're gonna do it the next day. So how much time do you actually spend on the bottom? I did it for 20 years, and I was about three hours that I was actually on the bottom. And then when I was diving to 20,000 feet, it was six hours each way. I was lucky to spend a few minutes before I had to go back up. So I was basically using an elevator, spending all my time doing this and this. And what I really wanted to do is this and this. So I went off to, I went to actually took a sabbatical and I went to Stanford and I was teaching geophysics and this was 1979 and everything was cooking back, you know, microprocessing, digital imagery, fiber optics, all the cool things. I should have thought, you know, I could make a cell phone with this, but I, I didn't. <laughs> uh, I was too focused, too passionate about exploration, but it gave me an idea. And I, in fact, I came back from my sabbatical at Stanford, and I published in National Geographic the December 1981 issue of my vision of future way of exploring. I called it telepresence. Now, Sitco patented it, but it was my word, but they, pat they let me use it. But, uh, the idea was to, m to have an out-of-body experience. The idea was to move away from sending my body down to sending my spirit. See, your spirit is indestructible and has no mass and can move at the speed of light. And as, you, as we age, you know, our body is not, you know, starts to not respond as well as we'd like it to. 
And so, but your spirit's indestructible. So I said, why don't we just move our spirits around and then put our bodies in a safe spot? And in fact, I can now do everything uh, from the bottom of the ocean from my bedroom if I wanted to. And so I published this cartoon. And then I'm in uh, amassing a great group of engineers. We have a joint program with MIT. And I started amassing an amazing group of engineers. And I said, turn this cartoon into an engineering design. And I remember the first time I showed it to my engineers, they went, you're nuts. I said, well, that's, that's, that's given. But what's that got to do with this? You know? <laughs> and they said, well, and they looked at it. And engineers are amazing, because my father was head of the Minuteman missile program. And I grew up with engineers. Engineers are always underestimating what they can do, unless you, you challenge them. In fact, there's a great saying in science that a scientist is like an ideal gas. He can expand to fill any volume, but he can only do work under pressure. <laughs> and so I always like to create an artificial pressure. So I said, what's wrong? And they said, and so they looked at everything. I said, you know, now I knew a lot of this was classified military technology at the time, so I was a little cheating a little. We had mapping systems that were highly classified. We had all sorts of stuff, fiber optics and all that. And they said, well, I said, tell me the law of physics that I'm breaking with this cartoon. They looked at it, and they, started, they looked at one another, and they said, well, yeah, it's possible. And I have them. As soon as they said it's possible, you're toast. And I said, then build it. And so they designed it. And this was translating the cartoon. It was called the Argo Jason system. But the idea was if I could move my body, spirit, into a, what we now call an, an end effector, uh, a vehicle, if this could become like you know, the, 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 the Navi in, 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 in uh, Cam Jim Cameron's movie, uh, where you transferred a person into a, another thing. I wanted to put our body into another piece of machinery. And so, but I needed someone to fund it. And the academic world said, eh, you know, it's a little too risky. So I went back to the Navy, and they said, we'll fund it, but you need to do some things for us. Roger that. And we had lost two submarines during the Cold War, the Thresher and the Scorpion. In the case of the Scorpion, it, we, it was armed with nuclear weapons. And we don't really like leaving them around. But we needed cover because we didn't want the Soviets to follow me to the site. We knew approximately where the submarines were from our SOSIS arrays. We heard them die. And we could triangulate roughly where they were. But we didn't want a satellite over our head, follow, leading them to our weapon systems. So they said, you need a cover. And I said, have I got the cover <laughs> for you? And that's what's down. So I feel so good about having the truth finally told after so many because, you know, I was a Cub Scout, a Boy Scout, an Explorer Scout, an Army, and you're supposed to, on my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country. I was trained to tell the truth, and I always had to say, you know, uh, I couldn't tell the truth. I couldn't tell the story because it was classified until they finally declassified it. So thank you very much for finally telling my story after so many years. But I learned a lot from going after the Thresher and the Scorpion. They taught me how to find the Titanic. Again, I couldn't tell anyone how I'd figured that out. But when they imploded catastrophically, they just 
you know, massive amounts of material went into the water. And as they free fell to the bottom, they were carried by the currents, and that created a debris trail. And that debris trail was much longer than the, the signature of the, of, of, of the submarine, or in the case of the Titanic signature. So I didn't look for the Titanic. I looked for its debris. I could calculate it. I knew a lot of information. And I was able to calculate how to, how to look at, go after it by doing very widely spaced lines looking for the debris trail. And then once I found the debris trail, I knew exactly what direction to go. So the Thresher and the Scorpion's tragic demise actually taught me how to find the Titanic. And so picking up that debris field of the Titanic, walking it through the boiler and right into the ship. And that was it. We were able to do that so much faster than the other search teams that all had failed, who had had much longer on target than I did, because I spent most of my time on the Thresher and the Scorpion. I had to do those jobs first before the Navy released me. Now, if you go and look in the exhibit, you'll see the Discovery team. You'll see my team in light blue, but then you'll see, see four people in dark blue. Those were the spooks embedded in my team. I said, <laughs> I said you really, can't you wear, you know, you, you're pretty obvious in these. But anyway, those were the naval personnel embedded in my team. But anyway, the Titanic was clearly the end of one story, but quite the beginning of another story, sort of realizing that the deep sea is a great preserver of human history. And, and so it it went on to a whole series of expeditions, but we did do our job. We did get inside the Scorpion. And they haven't declassified all that yet, but maybe I'll come back. <laughs> but then we went on sort of a binge of finding human history, went off to the Bismarck, and we, that was amazing, another beautifully preserved ship in the deep sea, Lusitania trying to explain the secondary explosion, it's Titanic sister ship, the Britannics, sank by the Germans during the Battle of Gallipoli, going after the wounded of the battlefield. Fortunately, they were on their way, not coming back with all the wounded. That would have been a real catastrophic loss of life. Guadalcanal, uh, the Yorktown, 17,000 feet of water. She was a hard one to find, sitting upright on the bottom. Even harder, President Kennedy's PT-109. That was a needle in a haystack, but we got it. And then most recently, I work in the, in the, in the Gulf of Mexico on uh, a Nazi attack in America when Hitler sent over these long, long uh, uh, dur dur uh, endurance submarines that sank a third of the shipping of all World War II they did during Operation Drumbeat in just the first few months of the war. We had no defenses against them at the time. And then I did a lot of work in deep, in, in ancient history including the work in the Black Sea, where we have found it to be the most preserving environment of all. It has no oxygen, and so there's nothing there to eat anything. In fact, I found a classical ship. Look at the state of preservation. That's been underwater two millenniums. Been underwater 2,000 years, but because it's in this dead zone, perfectly preserved. This is a ship I found from the classical period, 500 BC, with human remains. Human remains that have survived since 500 BC. So the deep sea is an amazing museum. I like to tell children that their generation is the generation of explorers, that the kids in, in, in middle school in 100 years will be known as the greatest explorers the human race ever had, because that generation in middle school will explore more of Earth than all previous generations combined. There's over 2 million to 3 million ancient ships that have yet to be found. We found less than 100. Just think what they're going to discover. If I could just live the rest of my life a, a, a day a year, 
I, I do it just to see where it's going. More from a Reagan Forum featuring Dr. Robert Ballard after this message. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org give. Now back to a Reagan forum featuring Dr. Robert Ballard. Then I went in to try to prove that the Black Sea was the site of the biblical flood and we were able to document the exact moment when it took place, uh, when the flood came in and changed it from a freshwater world to a saltwater world at 7,500 BPE, about 5,000 BC. Uh, so that was a fascinating expedition. But this is the one I'm working on now, which is an interesting one. So this is, goes back to, to uh, President uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, cutting a deal with Napoleon. Uh, when Napoleon had sort of screwed up with the British and he owed him a lot of money and he needed to settle a war debt and Napoleon said, I, I'll, I'll sell you the Louisiana Purchase for 21 million bucks. And Congress was totally against it. How's that sound? Huh? <laughs> uh, but like, like, like President Reagan, uh, Jefferson was a man of action and he said, I don't care, I'm going to do it. And he did it, and I, as you know, he then sent Lewis and Clark to find out what the heck he bought. <laughs> but he had doubled the size of America for 21 million bucks. And he made that great historic uh, trip uh, that uh, Stephen Ambrose so beautifully documented in Undaunted Courage. If you haven't read that book, it's an amazing book of that story. And I think we all think, I was just where that elk was yesterday. Uh, I was standing almost at the very, I just flew in from the Grand Tetons. I've been on a horse the last couple of weeks, so I'm glad I'm standing, I guess. Uh, <laughs> zip, got an extra cushion for me? But anyway, I don't think anyone would argue that that wasn't a good deal for America. And, and then it was followed by, by the great wealth that came out of the Louisiana Purchase. Well, now let's jump forward to 1983 when President Ronald Reagan signed this, the Law of the Sea Convention for the price of a pen. Didn't cost us anything. He picked it up, and he signed it, and he doubled the size of the United States. And then, then that was followed by a bipartisan, oh, my God, Republican president that we really needed to explore this new Louisiana purchase, the new Louisiana freebie, actually. And they then went on to uh, say, okay, we need to now explore the new America. And I was commissioned again <laughs> to bring uh, a ship online, the, the Nautilus, along with a federally sponsored ship called the Okeanos Explorer, which is actually an ex-Navy ship. And these two ships have the coolest mission you could ever ask for. Their mission is to go where no one has gone before on planet Earth <laughs> with a focus on the unknown America. And so I spent all this summer, I'll be telling you about what I'm doing, but the idea of this ship is really cool because we have no idea what we're gonna find. So it's like running an emergency room of a hospital. 
Uh, you, you, Patient comes in in an ambulance, they open the door, and it could be a mother having a baby, it could be someone had a heart attack, someone got ran over by a car. How does a hospital deal with this uncertainty? Well, they have doctors there to do a tr immediate triage, keep the patient alive, but then they're on the phones trying to get an expert, a doctor on call. Well, we've made a promise to our sponsor, the NOAA and the, and the U.S. government and commerce, that if we make a discovery, we will deliver the brightest mind in America to the spot of the discovery, regardless of time, depth, or location, in 20 minutes. That's a heck of a promise. Actually, it's a piece of cake. <laughs> because our ship is connected with high bandwidth links. So we have our robots, our navvies that carry our spirits. And the beauty is once we put them down, we don't bring them up. They stay down for days and days and days and days. So no more of this, a lot of this. And then we have a command center. And that command center is run 24 hours a day. You can go to our, our ships at sea right now. Go to nautiluslive.org. We're mapping right now. But in next month, we're going to be down in the Sea of Cortez looking at hydrothermal vents. You don't want to miss it. Sign up. We'll give you a social alerts. Go to nautiluslive.org. 24 hours a day, we operate around the clock, around the clock, around the clock until November 19th. So we're going to be really exploring a lot. I just got off the ship and then went to Jackson Hole. That was quite a gear shift. But anyway, uh, uh, and we'll be back on it. But this is then comes back by satellite to a facility I have at the Graduate School of Oceanography, University of Rhode Island, called the Interspace Center. I had to call it that. And it's then connected to the new internet that may, many of you don't know about. So internet two, uh, le uh, level three. So the new I2 internet is a 10 gigabits of bandwidth. It makes the one you're on, you're on a, the dirt road of the information highway. <laughs> you're on a dirt road. But I'm on a superhighway, 20, uh, 10 gigabits. I can completely fool you into thinking you're on the bottom of the ocean. So we're able to then build clones of our command center all over the, all over the United States and literally beam people aboard. And I have two offices and I have one of these in each of my office, so if I get a call, I can immediately go in and jump on the ship with my spirit and then go down to the bottom of the ocean. It's really cool. So why go? Well, there's a lot of stuff down there that's extremely important to us. Fisheries, sanctuaries that need to be preserved as nurseries to, to make sure that we maintain the populations of our planet. Here's the problem we're facing. 95% of the human race lives on less than 5% of Earth. 95% of the human race lives on less than 5% of the earth. And we're also consuming the little land we have. But here's the point. Mars is not the solution. <laughs> there is no exit strategy. I think it's wrong to tell children they can muck up earth and get off the planet. There's no plan B. There's no plan B. There's no plan B. We must live, learn to live in harmony with this creature that we're living on. Where do you want to go? <laughs> yeah, I think I know what the answer is. Also, we have another problem. 90% of all the large fisheries of the sea have been hunted down. We've been killing the top predators. We're eating the lions and the tigers and the bears of the ocean. We're hunter-gatherers out there. 11,000 years ago, we domesticated sheep and, and, and goats, and we cultivated wheat. 
We moved away from a hunter-gatherer society to a farming and herding society. We need to do the same in our ocean. We are way back in still massive hunting. This program I worked with called the, uh, the uh, Valala Project has taken a carnivore fish that we eat by in the sushi restaurant called hamachi, yellowtail sushi, and flipped it to a herbivore. It now eats algae because it has a choice, eat it or die. And uh, <laughs> it's amazing how they go get it, you know. They... And so we're able to flip them down to the bottom of the food chain and, and take them into a sterile part of the ocean and not sustain the life in the sea, vastly increase the productivity of the sea. That's the end game. The end game is not to sustain what we've got. Like in Kansas, sustaining prairie grass. Now we planted corn on it. And we greatly increase the productivity of that acre of land. That's what we need to do in the sea. Okay, what am my present project I'm having a lot of fun with. I've got a few more minutes. I want to tell you one I really got excited about was the movement of humans out of Africa as we populated the planet. Now, Africa is surrounded by water and desert, so it's hard to get out. But during the Ice Ages, you, could, you had times when it was green, greening. Particularly, you could definitely go down the Nile. This was basically where we all came from. You should do ge National Geographic's uh, genography. Give them a swab in your mouth, and they'll trace you back. It's really cool. Uh, and I know how I got there. But anyway, uh, you can get down to here, but then when you hit the Sinai, there's a barrier. But during the interglacial periods, it greened, and you could eat your way out and drink your way out. And so humans were pulsing out. And the one I've been focusing on is this one. There's a big controversy about when humans populated the lower 48. We knew they came over uh, 16,000 years ago when this was land during the Ice Age. This was called Beringia because it's a Bering Sea. But then they couldn't get past the glaciers. The glaciers were in their way. And they th they, the early thought was that they came down when they discovered in Clovis, Clovis, New Mexico, a spearhead. They called it the Clovis Spearhead. And that was 10,000 years ago. So they thought that's when they got, that it melted enough in Montana and Wyoming that they could get through. But now there's a counter theory that they came much sooner and they went around it. And the original thought was they, they got in their canoes and I went, what? Why not walk around it? And so it was one of these crazy things that scientists do when they just think about something and then they go to Google. And, uh, <laughs> and I ask a simple question. What? So I was focusing on that, and this is an interesting curve. So this is tw 22,000 years ago. It's called the last glacial maximum, LGM, last glacial maximum. This is when the glaciers were at their maximum extent. We call it in America the Wisconsin Ice Advance. And that's when there was a prodigious amount of ice all the way where I live in Connecticut, above my house just 12,000 years ago was two miles of ice. And when you add that all up, what's disappeared 20, 15 million cubic kilometers of ice has melted and gone back into the sea. And so when it did that, so here, it, that was 22,000 years ago, that's just today. You'll notice it isn't a straight line, it's like a staircase. It steps and goes steps and steps. Because when the ice melted, the glaciers face, they say retreated, but it didn't really retreat, it just melted faster than it was advancing. 
all that water uh, couldn't get away because it, the glaciers dammed the rivers with glacial moraines, what's called a terminal moraine. And these giant, giant lakes grew all over the planet. And then they went violently. This is where Noah's flood story came from. The Persians have a comparable one called Gilgamesh. Native, every ancient culture has stories of great floods because that's what happened when the ocean violently returned to the water, violently returned to the sea. So there were six of them. But when they were stationary, what's called a still stand, when they weren't rising, the sea was pounding against it and made caves. So I came up with this cockamamie idea. I got slammed for it by my peers, but that's always happens. I said, I'll bet you they, people use those caves. They said, first place, there aren't any. They were destroyed on the way up. And I said, let's go find out. So I'm going to go to each of those still stands and see if I can find caves. So I did. Now they're very quiet. But anyway, <laughs> I picked on these islands because that's where we believe they came through. And that was land back then. And I had my little toys. And I had this little guy running around looking for caves because it has a little cool sonar system. And I can drive. It's like a big, you know, video game. And we found these little holes, and we said, dive on them, because the sound wasn't coming back. If you get a black spot, it means the sound was not coming back. So I then brought in some crazy of my colleagues, Kenny Broad, who's absolutely a certified, he's, he's really nuts. I'm just kind of nuts. <laughs> and he is one of these extreme, he's actually a cultural anthropologist working in cenotes, which are sinkholes in, in the Maya culture. And uh, I said, I need you to dive in my cave. So we, he went in, and sure enough, we, we found these caves. And then I said, we need to go a little deeper, Kenny. So I kept going deeper and deeper, finding, but he would go in, and this is so they can get out. Uh, and they went in, and some of these caves had over a 1,000 feet of passageways and never been explored, never been penetrated. And then I went in with my robots, and I started finding the deeper ones because it would build deeper than Kenny and his team could go. And they went deeper and deeper. In fact, I was able to find caves at all four of those and ran out of time, but now I know uh, where to find these. So I was able to find caves at every still stand. And so the question is, we want to go in and look for evidence of human habitation, but we also know it's a very sensitive subject amongst the Native Americans. So how do we know which ones to do? And so what we're, we're into a new science called environmental DNA. And environmental DNA is a fascinating new tool scientists have been given. Uh, if you can go into a river, for example, and take a cup of water from the river, we can tell what fish are in it, what species. It's because fish fall off DNA off their bodies. And so uh, in Hudson River, we were looking for the sturgeon. We were able to find exactly where they were by sampling the water up the rivers. But it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing science. So the question is, can I smell human presence, urine? And the answer is, and German researchers are now finding Neanderthal urine in caves. Neanderthal, much older than these caves. So I'm working now with a scientist, uh, uh, Beth Shapiro at the University of California, Santa Cruz, who's an expert in environmental DNA. So I'm sending Kinney in some of the caves and collecting the samples, see if I can get a signature, and particularly deep in. So it's an exciting project.
but we're going to be mapping them next year, and then we're going to develop these three-dimensional mapping AUVs. for the. We've got a whole line of toys we're developing to go into these much deeper caves that are too deep for divers. And that's our end goal, is to find, uh, find the humans that, who, did they really come in this route? Can we find them? Can we find that they lived in those caves? Finally, my parting shot is, as you mentioned, my passion is, is the next generation. Uh, I'm so excited about the next generation. We just don't need to give them a big trillion dollar debt for their education, that's sort of rotten. But uh, what I'm trying to do is to get kids excited. So I bring them on the expedition and I bring role models. And my, my philosophy, Lewis and Clark's team was called the Corps of Discovery. So I call my team the Corps of Exploration. But unlike Lewis and Clark, I've mandated, because they can, that 55% of my core will be women in positions of leadership and authority. And I picked, I picked 55 because that's the college population. 55% of our college students are women. So that's where I got the number. Sometimes they go over 55, and I have to remind them that there are guys, and they need to... I also want my core to reflect the faces of America. Every child in middle school needs to find their face in the core. A little older, but if you don't have to make a big deal about it. But those, you can track their eyes, and you know who they tune in on when we're standing watches, and you know who they're asking questions. They're asking questions of people that look like them. So it's critical, as you can see, and we're very fortunate to have so many wonderful people in this country apply. We actually, we actually have a tougher admissions than Harvard. We're, we only take 6% that apply to come to see with us. So we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people to choose from, and we make sure we have that mix. And then we also broadcast live. I have television production studios. This was our stats last year, 368 broadcasts. We could do one here. Come on, we got to do it here. Uh, and to right into the classroom. I can go to any classroom in this country live and interact with the kids. We do museums, aquariums, and science centers. But the key is to mentor. And our ship is full of young people. We only take two kinds of people on the ship. Really old and really young. <laughs> Forget the middle. Okay. One of the wonderful things about the aging of our society is wisdom comes late. Not in time to use it. Okay. But as we get older, we have longer times to use wisdom. So I have on every watch someone who I call the old fart. <laughs> now, to be an old fart, you have to not remember when you got tenure. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Got way back. Because anyone that's trying to get tenure will kill their mother for data, okay? So you don't want those in the, you know, sort of the people in the, you don't want, when you get tenure, we'll talk to you. And we may call you because you're smart, but you weren't, you weren't, we're going out with just the old farts. And then the young, because the young have nothing to lose to, to adopt a new paradigm. Change is caused by people trying something that works, and then it's adopted. And kids will try anything. 
And in fact, you know, we all know these kids. They always, they've got things in their ears, you know, and they, they look like humans, but they're not, you know. And, and, and but they're, they're the ones here now. And so we're always taking young people. And I must say, I'm biased. That's my daughter, Emily. Now, she just went on her, she, you got to be at least 15 to go to sea. And so the day she turned 15, because her brother had gone before, and she said, I'm, the day I'm 15, Dad. And she started going, and she spent most of this, this last summer. She's now in college. But then they, after being mentored, they're then, you know, constant, constant immersion in the sciences. They live 24 hours a day, uh, day in and day out, constantly learning. And then we put them in the hot, that's my daughter in the hot seat. She's now a fully qualified video engineer. And uh, you can tell how hard it is for her, right? But the idea is to get all those faces and then put them in the, the hot seat. Because they know if they're standing a watch, the camera's going to find them. And then they dance. And it's so beautiful. So we do wave after wave after wave of kids coming on that cruise and it's just really renews your your hope so that's my final image thank you thank you so thank you very much thank you All right. Well, we're, thank you. Thank you so much. And we have people roaming with microphones. You all up there in the balconies. We want to hear from you. We do. So we have a few minutes. We do. And if you could, to take uh, some questions. If you have a question, if you raise your hand, just wait till we. Yeah, put the someone microphone. will track you down. Yeah. Um, There's right there. Yeah. He looks like an old fart, like the rest of the thing. <laughs> L67, and I'll be on your boat tomorrow. Okay, your rovers that are way down deep, I assume they're attached to a cable. Well, we have different kind of rovers. The, the, the primary hunt guys, we have what are called AUVs. And AUVs are autonomous vehicles. They're, they're, they're drones, but they have enough intelligence to uh, find something and then tell us about it. Uh, so we use them as what's called force multipliers. In our business, we have a saying in oceanography, two cables in the water is a knot. So, so you can only have one vehicle that's cabled. But that's the primary vehicle. So the primary vehicles are, you're, 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 you're in them. You're, they're hardwired. You're sending the power down, so you have infinite time on the bottom. All the power is coming from the ship down a coaxial cable. And then you have fibers, so you've got you, you, we, our command center, you think you're in a submarine with big windows. In fact, when a shark comes by, you jump back. And then we can replicate that on land. We can fool you now, particularly as we're moving to 4K technology and then 8K technology. In fact, our lawyers have said, just a second, this is getting too real. You need to have them find, sign disclaimers that if they, a shark goes by and they die of a heart attack, 
they don't sue you, even though the shark was 5,000 miles away. So, yes. But we also have the AUVs are sort of like a, a wolf pack. We can send the AUVs out as swarming, and this is the whole new thing of swarming, uh, drones swarming uh, AUVs, where they all work as a unit. It's really pretty amazing. And so you can send us a, a pack of wolf dogs out, so to speak, and have them track it down, and you jump on it with your vehicle to the surface. Just one quick question. Okay, so if it's attached to a cable, how much does the cable weigh? Uh, whatever you want it to. I mean, you can, you can buoy it, weight in water or weight in air. You care about, the cable cares about what it weighs in water. So you can play with its material to make it so that the cable won't break under its own, own length. The, the deepest spot of the ocean is 35,800 feet. So we have cables that won't break under their own weight. And so, because we're, they're armor and torque balanced and you can put material in them that will, that, that, uh, that exceeds the breaking strength of their own weight. Typically, their breaking strengths are about 40,000 pounds and our cables are less than that. So we, so we don't have a problem with that. And we've been to the deepest depths. Uh, Dr. Ballard over here. <clears throat> Hi, Dr. Valor. Um, I'm here today with one of my children, but I have two middle schoolers, a 12-year-old boy and girl that just started seventh grade, and it's very inspiring to hear what you're doing with that age group, and I'd like to know how I can head them your way. They go to school right here. Well, if you go to our website, uh, we have two websites. One is the live expedition that's constantly rolling along. And you can immerse yourself in it, ask questions, see videos. It's really a cool website, nautiluslive.org. But we have then the website that's the trusts, oceanexplorationtrust.org. And then you'll see all of the educational programs we have, all sorts of internships. And we started, like I say, we can take a 15-year-old all the way up to the old fart. And so uh, there's all sorts of different opportunities in high school. We have an honors program for high school kids. We have uh, internships for college kids from freshman, sophomore, senior, junior, into postdocs, all the way up. So we have all of those people rotating through our team, our core, in large numbers. Uh, we're, we're on a, this tempo we're on right now, we're at sea for six and a half months. We're moving to an eight-month tempo because we're building a, a portable system. So our goal is to be at sea all the time and always on the bottom, exploring. And that means we can take a lot more people. So we, have, we, we always have a teacher on every watch. I mandated that there will be a teacher. And it can be a middle school teacher. It can be someone in a boys and girls club, an educator, all the way up to a, to a, to a high school science teacher. Uh, and their job is to handle those 60,000 questions and to parcel them out to the experts that are either in the command center or in our network. When we're underwater, we have hundreds of scientists that are networked to us. So we can, we can tap into their intellect 24 hours a day because we have watches. So we're on four on eight off, four on eight off. So we always have experts that actually know the answer. One of the biggest problems of middle school science is a lot of the teachers don't know the answers. A lot of the teachers have no background in physical sciences. They're mostly botany, biology, zoology. And so they, they don't know the answer, and so they tend to deflect the question. We have people actually know the answer. And we also, we also uh, embrace that sometimes we don't know the answer. 
it's okay not to know. Why do you think we're here? We're here because we don't know. So I think it's important that teachers flip that attitude about if they don't know. I mean, my gosh, I mean, I, my wife does get angry when we're at dinner and I'm using Google all through dinner to answer in a conversation. But what we have at our fingertips now to get information, now there's a lot of bad information. You have to know what to believe. Uh, but uh, the access to data, but having teachers out there inspiring and then they go ashore, we go right into their classroom. It's a really exciting energy that's aboard the ship all the time. Over here, Dr. Valentine. Yes. <clears throat> when yeah. Yeah, I mean, go to our website. There's biologists almost on every watch. Yeah. Well, go, like I say, go to nautiluslive.org, and I'll, I'll bet you there's a marine biologist on watch uh, because we're doing a lot of work in the marine sanctuaries. Uh, and In fact, so, so they're out there, and they're a resource they can tap into from home. I mean, the beauty of it, see, the important thing about being able to access 24 hours a day. The elephant in the room in education is the parent we can't talk about. It's the parent. Uh, and, and so if the parent's excited, then that's good. So we want to excite the parent too. So we want the kid to come home and say, Mom, I want to show you what I'm doing and get the parent excited about it. Because then if the parent doesn't place value in the educational process, you've got a problem. And that's really the elephant in the room. And so we want, we want that parent excited, too. So that's why we work 24 hours a day. You can't not get to us. <laughs> yeah. um, to your right here, Dr. Bell. Yes. When you found the island, how many caves did you spot it? How many days did it take to find the Titanic? Well. Is that what he said? I said when you uh, went to the islands and found caves. Oh, when I went and found the caves. Yeah. Well, we found them. You know, I mean, basically it was all done with our robots. And we're now going to send Kenny in, the crazy guy, uh, on some of He now says he can go down to 200 and two, there's a, the, one of the main levels of caves on that staircase is around 220 feet. And he says he can go down and spend two hours on, they have nitrox, they have special breathing mixtures, but can't do it every day, but we have teams. So we're going to take on those deeper caves with divers, but then we're building a vehicle to take on the, the more deeper caves. Oh. I sent my one tethered vehicle in as far as I could get before the pilot said not, and uh, it could reach in with its, we had a mapping sonar system. I was able to three-dimensionalize the cave until the cave turned, and then I, we couldn't, couldn't see it. But we're building now AUVs and maybe wire-guided, like today's torpedoes, which are really wire-guided. You actually drive them. And what you do is you can, uh, you can send a vehicle in where it's spewing copper at both ends that's more than the distance. So most wire-guided torpedoes now, when they fire a torpedo, it's not just point and fire. They can drive it. And they drive it because they're spilling out fiber from the torpedo and from the submarine 
faster than it's advancing until it comes up short. But you can go for miles and miles and still be hardwired. So we're looking at doing that same kind of spooling technology. And in fact, there's a new technology where, which is amazing, is you can actually dispense the, the fiber and adjust its buoyancy as you, as you dispense it. So it'll just sit at a depth. So if you go down in a cave, it's literally the fiber will do that and sit. It's pretty amazing. By the way, you coat the fiber as you let it out. You know the depth and you know what the buoyancy and you can coat it and get it just to be neutral. So it's pretty cool technology. Uh, up here. Oh, yes, up there. The spotlight. I have two, two really quick questions. The first one goes back in time to the Celtic. I want to ask you something that's really bothered me for a long time. Did Ralph invent the mirror or did he go down in the mirror or did he do both? Ralph White. What was um, <clears throat> I've done all of the above, I think. Uh, she was asking about this uh, fellow Ralph. Ralph that White. Went, that Ralph White that went down. In the oh, I know Ralph, yes. Know. Okay, did he invent the mirror? Was he on the team? Right, Ralph was a cameraman on the team, yeah. Okay, so he went down in the mirror, right? That no, he, he, we didn't go down when we discovered it. Okay, he did not. He wasn't on us the next trip when we went down. Okay, and then my second... Ralph was on the trip... When we just, you're right in the spotlight, that's why I'm holding my hand. I'm sorry. Uh, Ralph was on the, uh, on the discovery trip, which was all done with robots. No one went down. Okay. We went back the next year, but he wasn't on that expedition. Okay, and then my last question is the IMAX film. I was at the premiere with you and Ralph, and you were on stage. It was a great film, and I never saw it again. It was never on television. Nobody ever put it on. Is it still being shown anywhere? I have... Terrible here. You had an IMAX film on the Titanic. Is it still being shown anywhere? A Peter Lowe's show <laughs> on, I think, at different theaters around the world. Each theater, IMAX theater, uh, has its own inventory of shows. So I'm sure you can go Google it. <laughs> you want to Google it right now. But anyway, uh, and you find out what IMAX theater is actually showing that show. And I'm sure they are still showing it. Okay. But you can just have, I think there's... 75 to 80 IMAX theaters or even more around the world. I'm sure they have it in their inventory. We have time for one last question. We'll just take it down the center here, Dr. Yes. <clears throat> what was your favorite submarine? What was my favorite? Submarine. Submarine. Your favorite submarine? The Nautilus. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Ballard. Thank you. Thanks so much. Just beautiful. We hope you learned as much about deep sea exploration as we did, and we hope you are as inspired by his remarks as we were. As Dr. Ballard said, follow your dreams. It's your passion that gets you up. Do not avoid failure. It's the greatest teacher you'll ever need. When it knocks you down, it's your passion that gets you back up. Thank you for listening. To find a listing of all upcoming events, please visit reaganfoundation.org events. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Until next week, thanks for listening, and God bless you. Don't forget to subscribe to a Reagan Forum podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of a Reagan Forum 
come out every Thursday. Like what you hear? Check out our Words to Live By podcast, featuring radio addresses and speeches Ronald Reagan delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. New episodes drop every Tuesday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan 40 on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.